Hello, sisters and friends. Welcome to Helping Children with Trauma and Abuse. I am Teresa Heathacker, and I work as a play therapist specializing in trauma recovery with kiddos and adults. And one of the things about my job that I probably love the most is the opportunity to come alongside parents, encouraging them with hope and understanding and tools for children's healings. I miss not being able to see you face to face, and I've brought a few miniatures, little characters to help me imagine the real lives and the real stories represented in the listening audience. I have characters in front of me that are older and could represent a grandparent. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have women that represent moms who are trying to live joyfully and hold it all together, moms who are sad or completely disgusted. And I have characters that represent young ladies, little girls, and I even have a baby. Well, when a baby comes into the world, there's two things that will cause her to get serious about communication. That would be her needs and her pain. And this seems to be true of children who have experienced trauma and was um, abuse as well. Well, luckily for baby... Most babies, they have a mom and a dad and perhaps caregivers who will see them in their times of need and distress, as well as in times of contentment. So mom hears cries from afar and comes quickly to soothe and meet the needs. And this leaves babe with an internal reality of safety in her world, where she can internalize. I'm seen and heard. I'm soothed in my needs. I'm safe in these arms that hold and caress me, in these eyes that gaze at me, and in this face that smiles and offers soft lullabies. I am secure, and my world is secure. Someone is here for me. And this is just what our bigger kids need, too. Attachment. I just shared the four S's of attachment that's being seen and felt physically, emotionally, and playfully soothed when I am in distress with my feelings and needs being accepted. Then I can rest in feeling safe and I am secure so I can explore my world. A significant disruption to development and relationship can happen when abuse and, and trauma, trauma can be defined as anything overwhelming, is introduced into a child's story. And parenting a child who has experienced abuse and trauma can be so overwhelming. It's confusing and difficult, at least. As parents, we may suddenly find ourselves trying to figure out why is my child lying, stealing, controlling, manipulating? Why all these tantrums? Why this clinginess? What do I do about the aggression, the yelling? Or the shutting down is so hard. And also hard is the belief that these behaviors are not the problem. They are only the symptom. Behaviors are the ways the child is expressing outwardly what is going on for them on the inside. So I encourage parents to get curious about behaviors. When do they happen most? Is it in transitions? Most of them are. And what is the behavior communicating about their safety? Or their feeling a lack of safety? Or what is their behavior telling us 
about their needs. See, if you can get in front of these behaviors and meet the needs before the child acts out, then we're one step ahead. Save a lot of commotion and chaos. So for the kiddo, the world that once felt safe may no longer feel safe, especially on the inside, and even long after the threat is gone. On the inside, children no longer have the ability to protect their world. They may no longer feel safe, and they may question their security. And they can't seem to control these behaviors that keep getting them in trouble. They begin to feel alone and ashamed, not only from the abuse or the trauma, but now also from the ways their body and behaviors are responding to it. It can be so scary to see the changes in our children. I want to assure you that we are designed to be resilient and to heal. If we want to know how to fix something, we have to know how it works. And if we want to understand the impact of trauma and abuse, we need to understand the brain and the body and how it is designed to respond. Parents and frontline caregivers are profoundly impactful in a child's healing journey. A child who has safe people to help guide them back into a secure world is one of the best gifts a child can have. I might even say the best gift. Restoration of safety is the first crucial task of a parent and a caregiver. The child must be safe, safe away from abuse or trauma, and safe in their current environment. They need help creating a feeling of safety within themselves even. There are a multitude of types of abuses and traumas that children may encounter. And again, trauma is anything that overwhelms us. And what overwhelms us or contributes to a feeling of being safe is very personal to each and every one of us. The child's internal percep perception of an event is what will define it as being overwhelming or as safe. And since we are all wired differently and have a unique story, it's honoring to trust a child's reaction to an event. It is equally important to validate the child's experience and feelings, not minimizing them because we may not feel that in our grown-up body, in our grown-up mind, that we would feel the same way. In honoring a child's perception and in validating their feelings, we teach them to internally trust their gut for their future. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we validate an inappropriate reaction, though. Abuse and traumatic events is an umbrella for many experiences, again, defined by the perception of the child. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, deaths, losses, divorce, medical procedures, accidents, being bullied, all these and more overwhelm the child's brain by fearing for their safety and compelling a survival response. I'm going to share with you four categories that trauma and abuse fall into. These are helpful to keep in mind as we try to interpret 
a child's emotional state as we try to interpret and be curious about what their needs might be, what it is that just impacted them. The first category is physical danger. Anything that may create physical pain and discomfort or the fear of it happening. The second category is unknowns. This is the unpredictability of danger. I don't know what might happen. It could be, I don't know if my abuser is going to come into my room tonight. It could be, I wonder if anyone will be at home when I get home. I wonder what mood they might be in. It could be, how will my parent respond to my bad grades or the stain in my pants? Where will I find food? How can I stay warm? Will they find me hiding? It is so helpful to children to provide them with as many knowns in advance notice of what is about to happen. Operating with structure and expectations for engagement can help calm these, these threats moving forward. The third category is emotional incongruence. This refers to a person having a feeling and yet that feeling being somehow dismissed or invalidated. It could be the proverbial elephant in the room and yet people are laughing and smiling. It feels uncomfortable. It could be the child feeling hurt or sad and an adult saying, there's nothing wrong, get over it. It could be the incongruence of an abusive person saying, I love you. Shoulds and shame is the fourth category. These are unhealthy expectations that feel like mental and emotional pressure. And often these become the critical inner voice. You should have known better. You should be more like your brother and your sister. You should be getting better grades. You should behave better because if you don't, you're going to hell. You should know what you're doing wrong. You should make me happy. You want me to be happy, don't you? You shouldn't tell anyone about what we did. So what does a child do when they experience one or perhaps several of these threats? Well, our brain is designed for survival and the brain is doing the right thing when it responds by going into fight or flight or going into a freeze, fall asleep, or people please response. When I work with families in the playroom, I will draw a brain on the whiteboard and draw a red hot brain section that represents fight and flight and a cold section in blue ink that represents freezing, falling asleep, and people pleasing. This would be the dysregulated feeling and associations in the center of the brain, known as the amygdala. Well, when our ability to tolerate a stressor or a threat is depleted, our body responds by our hot and cold brain telling us it is time to survive. The greater the survival employed, the further down the brain stem we go into basic survival functioning. I stress to families that the brain is just doing what it thinks it needs to be doing in order to survive. These behaviors are normal 
and may at the same time not be very helpful to meet needs effectively. The behaviors can be frustrating and get in the way. Well, hot brain comes from the brain perspective that I can do something about this and I'm going to be ready. And this is witnessed by behaviors such as anxiety, hypervigilance, the looking and listening for cues of danger or safety, anger, aggressiveness, hitting, yelling, defensiveness, reactivity, irritability, impulsiveness, inattention, inability to sleep well, appearing hyper, and having meltdowns. It is in hot brain where parents and kiddos have power struggles. Side note, I suggest that parents step out of the tug-of-war for power and repair later. And please notice that a lot of the symptoms above mimic ADHD. Before a child is placed on ADHD meds, I encourage parents to have them thoroughly assessed first with special consideration given to their stressors and potential trauma. When someone is in cold brain, the behaviors indicate a perception of helplessness or, I can't do anything about this. They often feel stuck. They dissociate. They may emotionally numb or distance themselves. They may engage in distraction-serving behaviors. They may self-soothe with things that could later turn into addictions. They may engage in self-harm or suicide ideation as they feel like just giving up. The cold brain is a place where someone is sad, withdrawn, crying, whining, sulking, reluctant to explore their world, and can't find much motivation. They may also try to feel safe by watching the moods of others, accommodating others by way of pleasing people, compliance, and acquiescing to others' wants and needs, but denying their own. We can also see times when our brain is engaging in both the hot brain and the cold brain behaviors. For example, we or our child may feel tremendous anxiety or anger on the inside, but on the outside be dissociating, isolating, and cold. Hot brain and cold brain is true for all people and we just want to pay close attention to what it's telling us in our children's behaviors. And we also have to be aware that as parents, this is a difficult task to navigate elevated behaviors and that we may find ourselves also going into our hot brain and our cold brain. If a child is dysregulated in hot brain or cold brain, it's impossible to reason with them. And this is why asking a child in the heat of the moment, what were you thinking, is really an unfair question and one that only causes the child to feel shame. They likely weren't thinking because they were not able to access the upper reasoning, critical thinking, and problem-solving part of their brain. Their brain was offline, 
as it was busy surviving. Or, developmentally, children are not spending the majority of their time in cognitive function, as this part of their brain won't even be fully developed until their mid to late 20s. Well, due to the power of intrusive thoughts, memories, and fears, we can feel threats to our brain even when threats are not immediately present. That means a child sitting at school during math may be reliving the fight at the house this morning and have their brain completely hijacked into a hot or cold brain and therefore unable to concentrate on math and end up failing in the class no matter how high their IQ is. This is why trauma and abuse will often impact education. Kiddos, but you know, really none of us are able to heal or grow or learn as long as we're in a hot brain or a cold brain state. It's here that most kiddos are unable to feel good about themselves, unable to focus, causing a low self-esteem, and unable to consider the goals and hopes that they would have originally had in school in a sport or a hobby. This is a place where shame and negative internal benefits, I'm sorry, in, internal beliefs can set in. Contrary to the hot and cold brain is a regulated brain state that resembles the awareness of receiving and giving grace. It's where our brain feels connected to our sense of self and to our body. It's where we can hold a wide range of feelings or the feelings of others. We can hold realities, even fears, and not be overwhelmed. It's a place where we can make logical choices, think critically and empathically, make eye contact, and communicate clearly. And later we will talk about ways to help us spend more time here. But for now, I want to take just a moment to extend compassion to parents and other caregivers. When we consider the four threats to the brain and we consider hot brain and cold brain, it's easy to find ourselves struggling with the same things that our children are struggling with. Perhaps we're triggered by a child's lack of respect and we retaliate with a hot-brained insult. Please know that our child experiencing trauma or abuse can be traumatizing to us as parents as well. And know that your well-being matters a lot. And so be sure to surround yourself with self-care and support also. This way, we can act as the thermostat in the house, setting the emotional temperature, not acting as a thermometer, as our kiddos often may. And also receive the wisdom of child expert Gary Landreth, who teaches about the thermometer. He developed the following theory from his own parenting disappointment, and he says, What's most important may not be what you do, but what you do after what you did. That's almost a tongue twister, so I'm going to say it one more time. What's most important may not be what you did, but what you do after what you did. So repair in parenting is likely a better gift than getting it right the first time, because who can get it right the first time? <laughs> Repair is attunement to self and the child to see where maybe I was tuned out or maybe I caused a rupture 
It's going back to our child in a calm state and noticing out loud what happened, acknowledging our mistake, apologizing for the way we hurt our child using specific recollections, not generalities. Repair validates the child's experience, their feelings, and the impact. Repair includes asking for forgiveness. And then we can revisit any child behaviors that need to be repaired. Often when we get frustrated, we may find ourselves yelling at our kids. And this is a perfect opportunity for repair. After we can settle down, we can go to our child and we can say, you know what? I was in my hot brain and I started yelling at you because I was frustrated and my frustration belongs to me. I'm sorry that I yelled at you. I imagine that was really scary for you and you felt really unloved for those moments. And I'm going to work really hard to not, to not yell some more. And often the child will be so receiving and grateful for this apology and this love. And then sometimes the child may offer up or we may introduce perhaps the behavior the child was doing. Maybe they weren't getting their shoes and socks on to head out to go to school. Or maybe they were, you know, dilly-dallying or picking fights with a sibling. So after we own our part, that's a time that we can say, you know, can I tell you what was frustrating to me? And then we can, in a calm, in a calm moment, work to problem solve how to deal with that in the future, soliciting the child's ideas for how to move forward. So in relationships, this repair creates an openness and a trust. It creates a belief that someone loves me so much that they returned to make sure that I was okay. It teaches the child that my parent is tuned into me. It goes back to attachment. My parent sees me, they feel me, they will soothe me. I am safe. And repair teaches resilience. It teaches that in this life we are all going to miss the mark. And there's always a place for a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. And that grace has a place here in our home. Grace for you and grace for me. Repair allows the relationship to get back on track without collecting any debris. And the truth is, attuned parents are really only attuned about 30% of the time. And the rest of the time, 70%, is rupture and repair pretty stunning statistic and it certainly speaks to the importance of relational repair. We are taught that we are wounded in relationship and we are healed in relationship. Well, herein lies the power of love and attachment and partnership. We want our child to thrive and so focusing on our relationship and attachment with them is our first priority after safety. And we can also seek about five other safe and healthy adults to be involved in their life. And as our children internalize this, this being loved well, we can check out their love languages uh, for a bonus, um, they will learn to love others well. 
safe people. That obviously, and of course, includes the parents. It can also include other caregivers and involve family members, involved family members, pets. It could be teachers, school counselors, principals, coaches, club leaders, mental health counselors, and God. And one of the most important relational needs is empathy. Empathy that is the result of accurate attunement. I like the word attunement because the definition is right in the word. We're tuned in. Like that old dial on your FM radio, if you're as old as I am. The signal was not clear until you were tuned into the exact frequency. And the tuning in with children is very similar. We utilize our curiosity about the child's experience, our observations about their reactions, and we look in their eyes to watch their feelings show up on their face. And we ask, and we listen. And all of this creates a deep understanding and attunement to the child's experience. Understanding happens when the child understands that we understand. And this is likely to reduce their anger. Empathy is feeling our child, but not feeling for them, as if the experience was our own. Safe people act on the empathy they feel, and this means that we will engage this emotion with our child at a developmentally appropriate level. Children are often unaware of the emotions they are feeling, either due to age and stage of development or because they've learned it's safer to hide their true feelings. A curious adult can reflect and validate the emotion of the child. They can say, you know what, it, it seems like you're really, really mad right now. We can use feeling charts, we can use emojis, especially with younger children. But we help children to label their experience, get on top of it, see their big feelings. We help them learn that feelings are so important as they tell us about a real need that we are having. It's important to not minimize a child's feelings, even if it seems hard for us to understand. So to Sally, age five, I might say, looks like you were so sad to see your friend go home. Shall we go read a book together? In this example, I saw the feeling.